This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm Josh Malden, your host, and I'm here with my co-host today, Dr. Andrew Davison of the University of Cambridge and a CTI member. And we're here discussing uh, this special series we're doing on theology, systematic theology, and what theology is. Uh, welcome to the podcast again, Andrew. It's great to be here. We did an introductory uh, episode already, which one, everyone can go and listen to, which we talk about what this special series is all about. And today we're going to be doing the first episode of this series, and we're going to be doing an interview with Professor Sarah Coakley. And I want to say a bit about who Professor Coakley is. Sarah Coakley was, was Norris Hulse Professor of Divinity in the Faculty uh, at, of Theology, or Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge from 2007 to 2018. Since 2018, she has been an honorary professor at St. Andrews University, and from 2019, a visiting professorial fellow at the Australian Catholic University. She's an honorary fellow of Oriel College, Oxford, and a member of the European Academy of Arts and Sciences, and holds de honorary degrees from the universities of Lund, St. Andrews, Toronto, and London. Andrew, uh, Professor Coakley was your colleague for a number of years at the University of Cambridge. Maybe say a bit more about her work and why it's so relevant to this series we're doing on theology, and in particular, also say something about what it means uh, to be a fellow of the British Academy as she is. Yes, so Professor Coakley is an FBA, Fellow of the British Academy. That's an academic body founded, I think, at the beginning of the 20th century to be the guild, as it were, of the humanities and the social sciences in the UK. It's very prestigious. It's the sort of opposite body to the Royal Society, the great natural sciences society. So they don't hand out fellowships of the British Academy uh, very, very often or lightly. So it's a real uh, sense of uh, recognition by the wider guild of scholars in arts and humanities of, of her distinction. She was my colleague for a few years. We overlapped the uh, beginning of my time as a lecturer in the Divinity Faculty in Cambridge. It was the last few years of her time as Norris Hulse Professor. That's a position actually in philosophical theology, and it shows the breadth of her interests that she's you know, published so widely also on Christian doctrine, Christian theology, the sorts of things we're talking about today, as well as having this great uh, interest and expertise in, in philosophy. I think of her as someone who really almost more than anybody, bridges between the academy and the church. I think it's very important for her and very important in understanding her and her work that she's a priest in the Church of England, has been for a long time, um, has that first-hand experience of, of work in the parish. And I particularly think that she's, as well as being an international figure, she's always been involved with small groups and localities. So when she was in Oxford in her parish, wherever she's been, I think, with, with local parishes, she lives in the United States now. Uh, and there was particularly a, a group of scholars, the Littlemore group, that she convened. Younger people and people who were spanning this sort of dual vocation of priesthood and scholarship. And that has had different members, and especially perhaps as people have got older, they've tended to leave and younger people have joined. And that group has produced some great books uh, sort of spanning academic theology and the mission of the church. Uh, and I mean, the funny, thing, the funny thing is, I say she's attended to these local things and small scale things, but actually they've they've had a great impact and she's nurtured the, these people who've gone on to be uh, quite influential. But I love that balance 
of of being on the international stage, but also thinking that it's so important to work with individuals and small groups. And her, her first volume of her systematics has you know really caused quite a stir. It's been much reviewed. There are already books about it, and uh, I think it's going to be four volumes. And the first one, which is uh, God, to... sexuality, and the self. Yeah, that's the first one. God, sexuality, and the self, an essay on the Trinity. But go on. The Trinity. Yeah. So the first mm -hmm. uh, theme is the Trinity, and it's going to work through to a fourth volume on Christ, on Christology. And I think the second volume is sort of with the with the publishers, and the third and the fourth volumes are underway. They're one of the most talked about recent contributions to systematic theology. So she's a very good person to be mm -hmm. starting the series with. Yeah, I was just looking at the Cambridge University Press page on her 2014, the first volume of her systematics, God's Sexuality and the Self. And as you're suggesting, because she's herself working in systematic theology, she's producing a, a multi-volume series. Obviously, she makes sense to discuss in this podcast uh, miniseries on systematic theology. I was just looking at some of the reviews uh, that they list. Uh, Church Times review of her first volume quote, wonderfully refreshing book and astonishingly rich and deep theological and spiritual exploration. Times Literary Supplement, rich, suggestive, and controversial. whole bunch of other really positive uh, reviews. Christian Century, reading God, sexuality, and the self is like watching the world premiere of a brilliant new opera, one whose story draws on fascinating bits of regional history so viewers come away understanding their own home better, even though the art itself is new. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, so I think without further ado, let's uh, bring Sarah in. Well, I join you, Josh, in welcoming Professor Coakley to this podcast, and we're very grateful to have you with us. In this mini-series, we're thinking about systematic theology or doctrines, it's sometimes called this discipline about thinking of the main themes in Christian theology in the round and from a lot of different perspectives and how all they uh, how they all relate to one another. And uh, Professor Coakley is uh, in train with a series of volumes on systematic theology, which have been uh, extremely, you know, caused a great deal of interest around the world. So we're very grateful to have you uh, with us. And I want to begin by, by jumping straight in and asking what it means for theology to be systematic and then how your volumes stand in relation to the history of writing about Christian doctrine. Well, thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Joshua, for inviting me. Um, this is quite a complicated question, but I'll try to be as succinct and clear as possible. The first use of the term systematic theology, I think, was probably as early as the beginning of the 17th century. In 1602, someone called Bartholomew Keckerman in Hanover but in a way, that's neither here nor there, because I think the genre that we're talking about um, goes right back to the New Testament period in which, for instance, we hear in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an account of the hope that is in you. And the idea that any Christian should be able to state not just as clearly as possible, but as systematically as possible, i.e., showing how the pieces of the good news fit together in a coherent whole. That's the core meaning of systematic theology for me. And I think that genre or undertaking has taken many forms in the tradition so that we shouldn't, as it were, 
over-distinguish modern systematic theology from earlier undertakings of this sort. Someone like Origen in the third century wrote a text called the De Principis on first principles, by which he meant here is the unfolding of the faith in a systematic mode. Later, many of the patristic authors wrote catechetical orations, uh, as Gregory of Nyssa did, to tell seekers for the faith what it was that they were taking on and how the bits fitted together. That's still true of modern Roman Catholic catechisms. An important author at the end of the patristic, Greek patristic period, John Damascene, um, in the ninth century, wrote something called On the Orthodox Faith, which was a summing up of the Greek patristic tradition, which was then very influential on the West later. But in the West, once we get into the scholastic period, there is a rather different approach, whereby either commentary on the so-called sentences became the main way of reflecting on the widespread of the faith, or later, something like the magisterial work of Thomas Aquinas, the Summa Theologiae, had the the shape of a series of disputations which unfolded the questions that people had right across the spectrum of belief in God and its ethical ethical consequences. So that's a very brief and over-brisk resume of how this undertaking has been done in different ways through the generations. Once we get in the modern period, we have an interesting contrapuntal dance between Protestant summations of the faith in the form of dogmatics, which were very popular after the Reformation from the 17th century on. Then this emerging other similar notion of systematic theology, which is not in its initial propulsion, I think, very different from the dogmatics. And then a backlash, you might put it this way, at the beginning of the 19th century with Friedrich Schleiermacher's idea that we should instead of simply, as it were, setting out the main creedal dogmas of the church, we should examine the, um, as it were, lived experience of the faithful and look at their teachings, their Glaubenslehre, their unfold, unpack the religious consciousness. And that's a very different and kind of modern experiential mode of the same undertaking. That's more than enough, I think, on the history. It's very interesting that in our own post-postmodern generation, there has in general been quite a backlash and negative reaction to the undertaking of dogmatic or systematic theology, much more so, I think, than those who are in the Schleiermacherian tradition and are happy to continue to unfold the religious consciousness of the time. But the idea that you could give a rather compendious or successfully overarching vision of the faith has been thought to be suspicious in various ways. And I think one of the interesting things about our current context is that on the one hand, there's a a new and great longing for systematic theology and an uprise of new attempts at it in various different forms, and at the same time, this, this resistance to it. And I think the resistance arises from a number of, as I would see it, actually misunderstandings of what systematic theology ought to be doing. In the first volume of my own systematics, I name three of these in particular. The objection that systematic theology tries to sew God up, as it were, to um, uh, refuse to acknowledge um, the the mystery and um, uh, uh, overarching transcendence of the divine nature. This is sometimes 
in the tradition of Heidegger called an ontotheological challenge. Secondly, there's the idea that systematic theology, by its same false ambitions, as it were, erases from view the great political and uh, and social objections to a church that isn't listening to the minorities. And then the objection is that it's behaving intrinsically in a hegemonic fashion. And rather similar to that, there is the great feminist reaction to systematic theology, which has tended to see systematic theology as intrinsically patriarchal, as supporting a patriarchal vision of the church and its teachings and unwilling to listen to the possibility of the need for transformation according to feminist insights. So those I see as being the the main, as it were, intellectual objections to the undertaking today. I think there is in addition a kind of prejudice that we sometimes find around in the churches itself that systematic theology is abstract and boring and disconnected from church life and too difficult and obscure to be bothered with in terms of mission and pastoral encounter. So that's all by way of saying, when I set out to write a systematic theology myself, I had not only all that history in mind, but I also had these particular postmodern objections in mind. And I think I have come up with a kind of response that attempts to overcome the objections. And if I may, could I just say what that consists of very briefly? The first thing one has to think about in writing a systematic theology or in laying out the plan for it is what is your starting point? What is your goal? Who are you trying to address? Um, and in what context and for what purpose? And this is obviously a sort of foundational set of questions. And my answer to that first question is that it's extremely important to go back to that challenge from the Petrine letter that we need at this time to be able to give a new and fresh account of the hope that is within us, that is attractive not only to members of the churches who are themselves seeking a deeper understanding of their faith, but also to those who hover on the edges, who are looking at Christianity from the outside, considering it as a possible lifestyle or as um, as a charismatic challenge. And even, I think, when one writes systematic theology, we should be thinking of those who have turned their back on the faith. Um, So systematic theology should not be seen as disjunct from apologetics, another type of genre of theological writing that is much disdained in these days, but rather should be seen as accompanying an apologetic task which I, in my view, has to be kept just a little bit separate if one, when one goes into the arena of first principles in relation to the relationship between theology, philosophy, and science, for instance. I think, in my case, I have written a volume precisely on apologetics in relation to modern science, but I, I don't regard that as actually part of my systematics. I regard that as a kind of prolegomenon, a, um, an entry hall, as Schleiermacher might have called it, into systematics itself. But that doesn't mean systematics then stops thinking scientifically or or philosophically as it unfolds its vision of the faith. I also think that systematics has to think of itself as, as I put it, in via. It's it's on a journey of exploration of the faith. It's not attempting what often people wrongly think systematics hubristically is doing, that is sewing everything up for all time. 
it is actually inviting people into an exploration in which one is itself involved. And that brings me to another aspect of my systematics that is controversial, which is that I don't think that the exercise of systematics should be disjunct from the practice of prayer, and especially prayer of a vulnerable and, as I put it, contemplative sort. Because I think it's only that kind of vulnerability in the writer and the invitation to that vulnerability in the reader that keeps this in via feature of the undertaking alive and also helps to respond to those three major objections to the undertaking that I just named just now. Because the practice of contemplation is itself deeply, you might say, destabilizing of any sense of achieved certainty. It's an invitation to go deeper into God rather than a sense of arrival. I've probably said enough for you now to want to interject another question, but it is also characteristic of, of my undertaking that it attempts to overcome quite a number of divides in the theological curriculum that have become unfortunately standard in the modern period. Shall I, shall I say a word about that? Please do. Well? Um, well, it's very unfortunate that in our theological curriculum, both in the universities, but more importantly in the seminaries in, in the contemporary period, there is a big disjunct between systematic and historical theology on the one hand and what's sometimes called practical theology or pastoral theology or contextual theology, which is very important for people who are trying to attend to the particular challenges of poverty, oppression, or being placed in a position outside the Western hegemonic universities, for instance. And I regard the disjunct that has grown up in that way as very unfortunate and as leading to forms of theology which, in a way, in a multicultural setting, sign their own death sentence. Because if they announce themselves as only relevant to a particular poverty-stricken arena or a particular set of uh, social concerns, that leaves systematic theology in the university kind of undisturbed from those crucial and important concerns. And therefore, what I'm aiming in this undertaking to do is to say that we must try and break down that disjunction as far as we can so that no one can read a systematic theology and not see that it has enormous practical implications and political implications. Can you imagine Augustine saying, now, what, am I doing systematic theology or am I doing, <laughs> or am I answering the Donatists? You know, I mean, of course those hang together. And I think we have to retrieve our confidence about this. And that's why in each volume of my systematic theology as planned, I am trying to take into what's classically called the loci of systematic theology, that is the main subject areas covered, not simply the traditional ones of the doctrine of God, Christology, Trinity, ecclesiology, whatever, but also um, particular challenges of our day that hit this arena of practical or political theology. So the first volume is precisely devoted to um, a systematic investigation of the problems of sexism um, in the Christian tradition. Um, and it's a, a kind of new feminist response. The second volume is about racism. The third volume is about classism. Um, and the fourth volume will actually gather these up together when it finally 
um, does Christology. By the way, another very important thing about planning a systematics is what you put first and what you put later. And what you put later doesn't necessarily mean that it's less important. So the climax of my systematic theology is going to be my doctrine of Christ. Many people brought up in the Bartian tradition would see that as a terrible demotion of the status of Christ. But if you're brought up in the Thomist tradition, you realize that you leave it till last because it sums up everything that you've been saying up till then. I think I've said enough now before you want to ask some more questions, even though there's quite a bit more to be said about the method. Well, I've got a couple of follow-on <laughs> questions for that. Uh, from that. Uh, I, I really liked your list of the reasons that people resist systematic mm. theology, and I will file that away. And I think there's a, <laughs> even a little bit of an expansion there, the, the fourth, uh, beyond the three that, that, that turn up in the mm. first volume. So there was abstract, totalizing and controlling, uh, hegemonic, <laughs> Uh, patriarchal and then uh, boring or irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> um, and I just wanted to hone in on the, hone in on the, the third of those, uh, patriarchal, because mm. I know in conversation uh, with you, uh, you've made a very helpful distinction here between um, the symbolic and the semiotic as a way mm. of understanding these feminist critiques. And I think especially for what might even follow in this podcast, it would be useful if you could lay that out for us. Sure. This contrast and that terminology which is being used in a very specific way comes out of the Freudian school of Jacques Lacan um, and was taken up by the famous French feminists um, of writing particularly uh, importantly in the late 20th century Julia Christopher for instance um, Luce Irigaray and it's often misunderstood as an essentializing disjunction between masculinism and feminism or femininity and masculinity. The idea here is, and it goes back to a Freudian idea about the importance of childhood and, the ch and childhood development, is that when the child is first born and is at the breast, um, the child simply identifies with the maternal, with the mother. And it's not till the famous mirror phase, as described by Jacques Lancan, when the child looks in the mirror and sees itself as a distinct entity, that it, as it were, becomes aware of itself as actually a self, an individual, to be distinguished from the mother. And the idea here is that all of us retain through this category of the semiotic, a memory of this unconscious absorption in the realm of the maternal, which is both comforting but also problematic, um, in that clearly if we are simply swallowed by the mother, uh, we don't grow up into a, fully into ourselves. But this is code for a whole way of um, relating to the unconscious and to buried memories about this early important phase, from which, say the Lacanians, we emerge into a realm dominated by the male in which uh, the so-called symbolic realm takes over and trumps over the semiotic in that in order to speak, we have to join the realm of language and we have to join the, the realm of language which discriminates between terms and clarifies and analyzes and points. Um, and it's associated with, as it were, analytic clarity and success in the intellectual realm and indeed in life in general. So there you have the, rather crudely put, you have the idea that comes out of French uh, Freudian analysis about how our ordinary lives are, are ordered, as it were, by a kind of imaginary, which is unconsciously affected by masculinism. 
At the same time, the memory of the semiotic bubbles up all the time, usually in the creative arts, through music, through uh, poetry, especially poetry that isn't that's elusive rather than... Think of James Joyce, for instance. I mean, he's the sort of um, ultimate novelist who majors in, in the semiotic, according to this view. This doesn't mean that, um, that women are all like that and men are all like that. The fact is, all of us are negotiating these two dimensions. Um, and the question for those who resist uh, systematic theology out of that arena of thinking is, is systematic theology necessarily dominated by this, quote, symbolic male-oriented thinking that is mainly concerned with analytic clarity and is suppressing out of sight the more creative, eruptive, um, maternal connected, um, uh, uh, artistic thinking. Now, I don't completely buy this theory, and I've taken rather a long time explaining it, but I think it, it's illuminating because what it shows is that any systematic theology worthy of its name in the contemporary scene that's concerned about feminism whichever theory of feminism you hold, has got to attend to the realm of the unconscious, has got to attend to the realm that criticizes what this school calls phallocentric thinking. And in my case, the way that I attempt to do this is really twofold. One, through my analysis of the importance of prayer as itself destabilizing that form of inappropriately hubristic tying up of doctrine. But the other way is through, in every volume, um, attending to a particular artistic medium that could throw light on the particular doctrines I am treating in that, in that uh, volume. So that in the first volume, I have used, I've used art of the Trinity to illustrate aspects of the history of the doctrine of the Trinity and elements of thinking about the Trinity that one couldn't get simply from talking about it. Um, in the second volume, I'm using poetry to probe to the depths or the nature of sin, which is very hard to express analytically. In the third volume, I plan to use um, passion music to express how um, in any doctrine of atonement worthy of the name, one has to, as it were, walk through the passion and experience uh, the highs and lows, the unconscious and the conscious dimensions of the transformation that occur through going on the story of Jesus's passion, death and resurrection. Uh, in the fourth volume, all four of those come together in liturgy, which, if you think about it, include all those dimensions of the of the semiotic. That brings me to uh, another question which we've already begun to discuss uh, with that, which is what theology looks like on the page or perhaps mm -hmm. uh, on, on the bookshelf. So I think one of the ways of getting at this question of, of genre is through the look on the page. Because mm -hmm. say in Bart, you have uh, larger print and small print. Um, some systematics are laid out with, with numbered and, and sub-numbered paragraphs, which, uh, or maybe with numbered propositions, for instance. Um, well, already you, you discussed the way in which if you open the first volume of your systematics, you'll find images, you'll find colour plates. Uh, and um, also, I, I know you uh, pay particular attention to bibliographies uh, mm -hmm. as, as, in a sense, giving people a jumping off point 
for, for their own further thinking. So maybe it's a bit of a, a creative question, but it does perhaps relate to that uh, that realm of the of the artistic and the unconscious. Uh, just the, the look of what you're achieving and and, the, and not um, a set of uniform hardback volumes that that attempt to say everything but books that are with their covers and their titles also somewhat occasional uh, with that sense of a, of a context so I, I think just in terms of a kind of visual way in um does that open up any questions well it's so interesting that you're the first person who's asked me that and i'm so glad you so insightful of you to see this because i i can't tell you how long it took to to have a negotiation with Cambridge University Press, not only about what typeface would be used, but how many words would go on the page. It was only at the end of a long and very creative discussion with them that I explained to them that I wanted pages of very of, of, ni- of a nice typeface, but also that didn't overcrowd the page and that the book should be no longer than 200 pages. So it's not too crowded. The chapters are not too long. The, the chapter on the artwork has, um, has art on, on every page. The bibliographies come at the end of each chapter. And um, in order to avoid having too many footnotes, there are very few footnotes actually in the chapters. But if people want to f- chase up where everything came from bibliographically, they can, they can look or they can not look at the three to five pages at the end of each chapter, which explain further reading. But also, quite intentionally, I write at the, each, at the beginning of each volume how the argument's going to unfold, what the main pieces of the argument are. Because I think it's so difficult for people who are trying to get into academic theology generally to, to get up courage to get into a, into a fat uh, theological book that was clearly written, I think, you know, for other for other theologians. Um, and I write books like that too. <laughs> um, one's sort of obliged to in the Guild. But uh, this one I deliberately did not. And I'm keeping up that, that genre as I go on. Um, I also think it's important to say that I am writing a series of distinct Gesammelte as they say in German, you know, collected essays that are published separately, that in a way is doing the footnote work of these volumes. So if the academics want that, they can read that in separate volumes, but you won't be laden with that sort of detail in, um, in the vision that I'm trying to express. Because I'm so keen to reach an audience that I think is desperately in need of sustenance, uh, intelligent people, I don't mean necessarily people with a large number of degrees, intelligent, thoughtful, prayerful Christians who want to explore and deepen their faith, not only through theological reading, but through um, scriptural meditation um, and uh, greater knowledge of the tradition. Um, And then expansion of the exploration of the meanings of this, um, this truth through other mediums of artistic reflection. Moving to another question, um, your your first volume of your systematics, God, Sexuality, and the Self, an essay on the Trinity, has been out for a few years now and has attracted enormous amount of interest, and it's become an important book in the terrain of systematic theology. Maybe speak a bit about the reception of that book, and if anything about the reception has surprised you and how you want to respond. Well, thank you. I've been amazed at the response. I think you never know when you write a book whether there's anybody out there who's going to read it. 
I think, unbeknownst to me, I did hit a kind of moment where um, a certain set of different fashions about uh, feminist theory were coming to a little bit of a denouement together. And so within the pages of this book, there is a debate between more classic egalitarian forms of feminism and then um, the postmodern gender theory that has tended to eclipse that undertaking. Um, And an attempt really to overcome that disjunction through a more deeply theological and contemplative-based approach. So I think people found this kind of intriguing, and it was saying something that they hadn't heard before, and so they either reacted with revulsion, as some have, or, or or with great excitement. Another arena of people who I never thought would be interested in it um, are my friends, the Pentecostals, because there is a very high um, doctrine of the Holy Spirit in this book. Um, It's part of its um, internal propulsion to rethink the doctrine of the Trinity um, in relationship to prayer, especially, and peculiarly through the way that Paul in chapter eight of the Romans, especially, discusses prayer as being animated from within by the Holy Spirit. And that is really the kind of core theological starting place, you might say, in this particular volume. So to discover that, you know, the Journal of Pentecostal Studies wanted to do a whole issue responding to this was very unexpected, but wonderful too, because Pentecostalism is going through a very interesting transformations, especially in this country at the moment, and it's becoming interested in systematic theology itself, which is a wonderful conversation to have ongoing. I did find that there were some people who misunderstood what I was saying about prayer and contemplation, um, either because they reacted against it as a kind of elitist move. It, it seems to be very, very difficult to diffuse the, a presumption that prayer of an attentive or relatively silent form uh, must be only something that um, either narcissists or elitists or or intellectualists are involved in. And I continually have to undo that set of presumptions. If you think about it, you can contemplate anywhere and whoever you are, right? You can contemplate in a prison cell when they've taken all your books away you can contemplate without being able to read. I'm going to have to say more about this at the beginning of volume two. In fact, I do. It's in the writing because I start there with some field work in an American jail where actually practicing silence can have an extraordinary effect of solidarity and resistance against oppression. So I'm constantly having to have a dance with those who react negatively to the idea of contemplation Um, I also find that they sometimes misunderstand, they think they like what I'm saying, but they shouldn't, because (laughs) what they think, what they think is that either if they're Methodist, sorry, Joshua, if they're Methodist, sometimes they think this is the fourth leg of the stool, you know, this is uh, scripture, reason, tradition, then we've got prayer, right, or, and and so they, they see this as experience, and as my using contemplation as a kind of fourth criterion of religious truth. And I need to explain that further, because that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the contemplative act changes the, 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 um, the flavor of how we respond to the authorities of scripture, reason and tradition, rather than that it's a fourth one alongside and perhaps trumping the others. 
by the same token, I was sometimes heard as doing a kind of feminist theology which is merely experiential and not intellectual. I think you can tell already that's absolutely wrong in my case, but people who can't even be bothered to read the book tend to come up with that with that presumption because that's the kind of feminist theology they don't like and they assume I'm I'm part of it. Um, I've also been wrongly and very badly wrongly understood to be joining the ranks of a fashion within Trinitarian theology that was very vibrant in the 80s and 90s, known as social Trinitarianism, which did have <clears throat> the great virtue of reviving Trinitarian theology in general. I associate this particularly with the work of Jürgen Moltmann, um, with the uh, Greek Orthodox uh, John Zizoulas, uh, with various Western followers of him, including the late Colin Gunton, for instance. And this was a, uh, a great uh, regeneration of Trinitarian theology, which said that, uh, first of all, that there was a disjunction between the way the West had approached the Trinity and made it very boring and abstract um, versus the Eastern promise of the Cappadocian fathers, for instance, who started from the three and moved to the one, where it was assumed that Augustine had started from the one and moved to the three. This has proved to be not actually supportable, even in textual terms. But what followed from that was that there's this wonderful idea that the, um, we could revive Trinitarian thinking by seeing it as a kind of prototype of the best kind of community or the best kind of political arrangement. Uh, Miroslav Volf of Yale even wrote an essay, a very influential one, called The Trinity as a Social Program. And uh, feminists jumped in on this and thought, this is wonderful. We can see the Trinity as a prototype of the best kind of community of equality in which men and women are equally acknowledged and started weaving associations of femininity and masculinity into a glorious mix within the persons of the Trinity. I was briefly influenced by this in the 80s, but by the time I wrote this God, Sexuality and the Self, I had completely disowned that approach. And um, I do wish to say that any attentive reader of this book will be able to see that I do not think that we can fix the Trinity by um, putting some feminist addendas into it. <laughs> Rather, um, nor do I think that the Trinity is three centers of consciousness welded together by a desire for communion. Um, I think that's a completely false starting point. Rather, I start from the phenomenon of prayer as itself witnessing ineluctably to uh, three distinct entities within the Godhead, which, however, can never be uh, distributed into different activities or different genders, um, but are absolutely um, indissoluble. And that when this is examined, what we see is, a, is a, a doctrine of God as Trinity inviting us into a form of participation which itself transforms our views of gender, whatever those worldly ones are. So you see the difference. You're not, as it were, projecting your current fashionable views of gender onto God. You are examining how God, in God's ineluctable threeness, transforms us through a life of prayer. So I think I've covered some of the main misunderstandings. I've also covered some of the delight that I felt that this has hit a nerve in the church and indeed on, on the edges of the church to judge from the people who write to me about the book. 
On that point, I wanted to come back uh, when you were talking about the three or four uh, kind of misunderstandings of systematic theology that are resistant to systematic theology. And Andrew focused on the, the third, the patriarchal critique. But the fourth, the, the one that is boring, I wanted you to speak a bit more about how you, a lot of people think the, the, systematic theology is only written for other theologians. And I know that's not your view. You're writing for a much broader audience and you think that it, it not only do you think, you've seen evidence that it, it does have interest uh, beyond the academy. Maybe speak a bit to that. Well, if we theologians don't have interest beyond the academy, then we are signing our own death warrant, it seems to me. And that's true, actually. Of course, there is a form of um, high intellectual endeavor that takes place in universities that has a good in itself, in every subject. And once we lose touch with that basic truth, we're in danger of a severe form of anti-intellectualism, not to say possible book burnings. Um, so I stoutly resist the idea that there shouldn't be um, uh, forms of endeavor in the university that are not of general interest. You know, Akkadian grammar is not of general interest. Um, but um, I think any theologian who is also devoted to the church, and I happen to be one of those because I'm also a priest, has got to think very carefully about what their life's work is for. And if we reflect again on the great the great theologians of the centuries, all of, the, all of the, the really great ones are ones that either uh, were devoted to building up the church or were devoted to criticizing it. <laughs> and it may be that in some generations, it's the criticism of it that is the most important, or it can be, as in my case, a combination of both. I think the churches are making terrible mistakes at the moment. And one of their terrible mistakes is that as uh, the mainline Protestant denominations in this country bleed members out, the assumption is that theological content is not what's needed to keep them in or to attract them in. But they do have a point. If the theological materials available from the universities are so obfuscating as to be incomprehensible, um, are written in postmodern lingo that no one else can understand without a dictionary, then we have indeed defeated our own purpose. And so it took a lot of courage to write this genre. I had to do it at the end of my career. Um, if I had written this book in my 20s, it probably wouldn't have helped my career. By the way, I couldn't have written it in my 20s. Um, yeah. We start our careers by writing books mainly about other people. <laughs> we cut our teeth on that. And then many people assume that that's what theologians do. And many of them do do only that for much of their career. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be very illuminating. But if one is a theologian who is actually trying to give an account of the hope that is in us, <laughs> then I think more is demanded of us. And on the whole, it's better left until we are fairly mature because we have a better sense of how we can, how we can give this back to, to the public and to the church in a way that both theologically sophisticated, but one hopes at the same time uh, distilling a certain amount of life's wisdom. Um, I don't claim too much on that front, but it's certainly my, my hope. I know you're involved in your local church and local diocese and, uh, like me, I think, have a, a strong sense of the role of theology and the renewal of the church and reaching, reaching new audiences and the, the real uh, appetite that there is 
for systematic theology. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, um, sort of at a, at a local level, really. Uh, there's, there's the Littlemore Group, for instance, uh, which you founded in um, the suburb of Oxford, uh, which has had an important role, especially in the UK, but also around the world, uh, in uh, writing theological volumes that, that mediate this to a, a broader audience. But I, I think that you may have some stories of uh, the sorts of people who are being uh, attracted by this uh, theological work. Yes, well, um, two sides to this. Um, just a word about the Littlemore group, because that was um, formed by me in 2005 out of an instinct as a priest who was living both part of the year in America as an Episcopal priest and part of the year in, in Oxford as, uh, as an, an Anglican priest, a sense that there is a great tradition within Anglicanism, especially of scholars doing work out of the parish of um, the, the priest scholar um, uh, vocation, uh, which historically goes right back to the beginnings of the, of the, English Reformation. Uh, of course, it's not for everybody, but it's um, what's come out of that is uh, a kind of canon of literature in which priests who are doing the usual daily round in a parish of you know, prayer and praise and pastoral emergencies and um, managing the money and the buildings and all that, nonetheless, at the same time, are continuing to think theologically and to write out of those exigences. And it struck me that that's never been a tradition that's so developed in the Episcopal and American context as in the Anglican, and that the Anglican one was in danger of going under, under certain pressures, which I perhaps need not spell out. <laughs> uh, it would take quite a long time to do so, but it's basically about money and resources and time. And so I founded a group of 12 people, a good number, um, who were all up against it in parishes and wanted to think through some of the great issues for the church um, as a group uh, who also supported each other by prayer and regular meetings. Um, and so five books have, have come out of that and they are highly accessible. And they're also um, books that I think are attacking some of the deepest aporiae, the deepest um, problems and crises that the Church of England is facing at the moment. The last one's just come out this last week. It's called The Vowed Life. And it's, um, it's about the problem of um, the demands that are made of us in baptism and how all the other vows that come out of that are related to the, to the vows of baptism, especially and including since the 19th century religious vows. And we're living during in a time in which there's an enormous interest amongst young people about new, about new monasticism, so-called, young people who want to be part of communities that make real commitments. And yet the older monastic um, communities are having great difficulty in attracting people who want to make a life commitment like that. So this book is looking at how commitment and demand and asceticism and compassion all hang together in a life of the Christian. And when we make these separate vows, we build on the vow of baptism. And we're pointing out the Church of England has not been thinking of late about how these all correlate. And we hypothesize that the great longing for community in the new monasticisms may be partly because the church has not been asking enough of people at baptism or confirmation. That's just a sort of short. Um, but the other books are about other deep theological questions that go into the heart of contemporary religious belief, at least in the Church of England. So that, that was one little institutional vision, which 
has, I hope, been, um, it's certainly been very supportive to me in my vocation. It's informed what I've been doing in my systematic theology. Um, but to speak more locally now of where I am in America, I think there's a bit of a crisis, to be honest, about theological teaching in the churches, uh, in the liberal denominations especially at the moment. And I think some of the people who are leaving Episcopalianism in droves are not leaving liberal Episcopalianism because of the well-known issues about gay marriage or women priests. I think they're leaving because they want something, some greater substance. They, they want Bible study. They want, <laughs> uh, they want some profound account of the faith that will make them clearer than they were before that this is a life or death matter being a christian this is about life and death contending and you wouldn't do it just for social reasons i think people have in the pandemic realized that they were going to church for social reasons now they know they'd rather go for a walk or take a football team somewhere so this is what we're up against and to flee away from the question of the substance of our theological teaching at this point strikes me as the opposite route as that is needed. But I have met some opposition. Um, I won't go into it. Um, and uh, I think the thing is to find um, clusters of people within one's church, as I did with a little group who care about this and actually activate possibilities for um, developing materials online, such as these wonderful podcasts, um, uh, meeting together to support other clergy who are concerned about this. Um, it's a matter of mobilizing in a fairly political way, actually, and I am now engaged in that. I think that's exactly uh, wonderful, just completely right, such a clear diagnosis of the situation. I think it's a, sh a shame that there should be uh, a sense of the, of the church not having those resources because there are actually so many young people, young clergy, young laity as well. I mean, old people as well, but I especially see it among the, the younger members of the Episcopal churches that I know who have great interest and put a great deal of time into reading theology and, uh, and have a lot to offer there. Um, I, I think you're right about the disjunct between the church of England and the church in the United States. Uh, and you know, for my part, uh, uh, about a decade ago, I had a hand in setting up, the Society of Scholar Priests in the Episcopal Church with exactly the same observation that, that there's a sense in the UK that one can have a dual vocation that is treated with quite a bit more suspicion in, in the state. So I do commend that to people to, to have a look at. Um, what would you say some of the maybe online resources are that people could turn to or, or um, nascent communities? Uh, I suppose there are, there are some societies of priests. Uh, it would be different from church to church, I suppose, but uh, one of the things about social media and what we're so much better at uh, after the, the pandemic uh, are ways in which people can gather virtually. Although I do think the local is very important. Right. Uh, uh, yes, you want both. But um, certainly during the lockdown, a lot of people were really trawling the web to find substantial contentful materials. And they found that there's plenty of materials on the evangelical end because um, the evangelical churches have been very, um, you know, very ahead of the game in terms of online communication. But this tends to be, um, first of all, solely biblical and secondly, not necessarily biblically critical. Um, so that's an issue. 
There are wonderful television materials done by Robert Kuhn called Closer to Truth, which I think we've both in, been involved in, which are not, um, you know, they're, they're not representing any particular religious position. And in fact, Robert Kuhn himself is a skeptic, but he has a fantastic ability to put together intelligent programs that look at philosophical, scientific and theological questions together with some of the top people available worldwide. But I think there's still a gap. I mean, I think for the Episcopal Church, the highest priority would be to develop some top rate webinars that could be that use, use that used all their best theologians and many priests who are also engaged in this kind of formation that would then be available widely. Um, and I think what we need is a donor for that and it, for it to be done in a coordinated fashion and not just locally. I myself on my own website have placed um, a, a number of, of my own teachings that have been done uh, in, in the churches um, and lots of other people find them and get in touch with me afterwards. Um, but that's just a lone effort by one person and um, not... Uh, not sufficient to cover the the great challenge that I think is is confronting people in this in this day and age. So this is this is the medium of our era, <laughs> along with I think a need for tremendously good, um, uh, accessible, substantial uh, theological books, both of the systematic genre and of what I earlier called the apologetic genre. Um, and there are some notable people who are doing this. Um, David Bentley Hart, you know, is, is, a, is a very good example of someone who's found that genre and found an audience. Um, mm. But he's done it partly by not being an academic theologian of the traditional sort, bowed down with duties in the university and with his students. But there's much to be done here, and it's very exciting. And I think the people who care um, and want it done um, should be making their voices known. Um, and the people who want to support this financially ought to be stepping forward. And I've got a couple of donors already, but I'm constrained at the moment by my feeling that I want to finish my own systematic theology before I fall off my perch. <laughs> and doing those kinds of online materials really well, as you know, takes time um, and skill. Well, that's a wonderful call to uh, call to action. And you've mentioned apologetics there. And... Of course, your position in Cambridge, your chair was in philosophy of religion. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a very integrative approach to the world of, of theology, um, working across the various unhappy divisions. Um, yes. And another thing notable in your time in Cambridge was the uh, really an astonishing investment in some science uh, to mm -hmm. the point of having, I think, three uh, postdocs who were with us for two and three years, uh, embedded in science labs. This was there's nothing dilettante-ish about this. It was uh, it was uh, absolutely um, as as embedded in the science as one can imagine. So we've got science, philosophy, religion, apologetics. Um, I just wondered if you could say a little bit about how uh, that that, it, that that represents a vision of what systematic theology is and its yes. relation to outlying or uh, neighbouring disciplines. Yes. I mean, I, this is a very subtle question, and I'm glad you came back to clarify it, um, because it's not the case that I want systematic theology, as I'm writing it, to slurp up every single other 
contiguous discipline. Um, I think there is. Uh, I think I think systematic theology, when it's um, uh, appropriate to the subject matter, should be drawing on these other disciplines. Um, but I think in the case of hard science and very technical philosophy and philosophy of religion, there is, in my mind, a slightly demarcated arena, which traditionally in Roman Catholic terms would have been called foundational theology or, um, or apologetics. Um, but in my thinking is a kind of um, discussion to which I invite people who are actively atheist, um, who are... Uh, scientists and philosophers are not seeking the faith, um, as well as those who are, and in which I want to talk with them, if necessary, agonistically (laughs) about the meaning um, that comes out of thinking about some of the hardest questions in science today. Because one of the things you learn, as I learned when I spent three years in a science lab myself at Harvard when I was teaching there, and was lucky enough to have a have a a grant that allowed me to spend three whole years talking to evolutionary biologists in a period of enormous contention, as you know, about the methods of evolutionary biology, whether mathematical or empirical or both. What I discovered was that science isn't, this is obvious to you, um, but science isn't, as it were, a block concept. Science comes in different genres and it comes in papers that are published in highly technical journals, then it comes in a more um, uh, accessible format that is fed by the scientists, either to the science writers or to the newspapers, or um, in other words, it's, it's, it's represented in, in, in genres that are understanded by the people, to use that old phrase, um, that don't require one to know all the technicalities of how it's um, how it's come about. Um, and it's at that level of, of medianship to the public that science often becomes larded with certain kinds of narratives which disclose that certain presumptions about philosophy of science have been smuggled in to the science itself. Um, so anyone who wants to engage between theology and science needs to do philosophy of science. There's no shortcut. And if you try and just come along as a, um, as a theologian and do what I call naive correlationism um, and just say, oh, yes, um, uh, that uh, entanglement theory in physics reminds me of the Trinity, uh, that's, far too, that's far too short a game. Um, you have to understand the science first at its deep level, at its really technical level. Then you have to go and talk to the, to the philosophers of science. And interestingly, the scientists on the ground aren't always doing philosophy of science themselves at all. They're just assuming various stories that they put out to the public. So this is a very complicated endeavor. Not all systematic theologians are, want to get, are going to want to get involved in this. But I, be, I became involved in it very deeply as a philosopher of religion, as well as a systematic theologian. And I now regard it as the whole arena of my work, which is a sort of vade mecum, if you might, you know, an invitation into my systematic thinking, but it's distinct from it. And in my Gifford lectures in 2012 in Aberdeen, I was engaged in precisely that genre in which I was trying to think through what the the latest developments, very contentious developments in mathematical evolutionary biology might mean for understanding the phenomena of selfishness and altruism within the evolutionary spectrum. 
So it's a complicated answer to a, a complicated question. Um, however, in the pulpit, I find, um, I'm often looking down into a congregation which includes highly sophisticated scientists. And the idea that they should leave those concerns as they come through the church door, <laughs> that they should not be themselves seeking some kind of integration of what they're learning about truth in the realm of secular science and what they profess as Christians, seems to me to be one of the most important challenges of our day. And that goes right down to 17-year-old high school kids who are doing extremely sophisticated mathematics and science by the time they leave school. And they come to church and nothing at, at all like that in terms of sophistication is being offered to them theologically let alone some integration of that curriculum with their Christian faith. So you can see I'm a passionate advocate for the arena that you lecture in, <laughs> Andrew. Um, and yes, um, I was lucky enough to raise the money to train three particularly gifted um, philosophers and theologians by placing them for three years into top labs in biology physics and psychology at the University of Cambridge and to create these conversations. And the most interesting thing about that was that I'd expected resistance from these top labs to people like these. Um, and there might have been some scientists who wouldn't have wanted them because they were really hard boiled atheists. But in the case of all the people who were running these labs who were not Christians, they said, Every day we come across questions that are philosophical that we can't really answer in the empirical work that we're doing because it's not part of the grants that we're given to go into these philosophical questions. And we want people sitting in our labs who are actually also negotiating with the historians and the philosophers of science and will, as it were, act as conduits for these kinds of conversations. Because actually the way you set up your scientific experiments is itself already front-loaded with more or less unexpressed metaphysical or empirical presumptions. Mm -hmm. And so in each case, I think these conversations that were created were very positive for the scientists themselves and not just for the philosophers and theologians who were learning in that context. The um, other question we have is just to speak a bit about uh, your upcoming second volume of your systematics, I know it'll be out next year, in addition to this essay, uh, Christology essays you have coming out as well. In, in particular, we're interested in a, a question about how to thread the needle between, you know, being responsive to the needs of it, of the age. I know your your first volume already does this, but between that, that need of being responsive to contemporary culture, while also being um, attentive to the history of Christian belief in theological writing, the whole the long tradition alongside contemporary needs and issues. When you're writing theology, you never know whether what you're writing today could um, be sunk without trace within 10 years because it reflected either you know, a passing fad of feminism or a passing difficulty within evolutionary theory or whatever. You, 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 can, you can't guard against undermining your you know, your life into perpetuity, which frankly, I don't spend much time worrying about. And then we, if we look back at some of the great theologians in the modern period, especially, we realize that some people just got lost without trace at the time and are now being rediscovered because of their extraordinary 
you know, perspicacious insight into a modern problem. So much, think of someone like Simone Weil, who sort of scarcely read and at the time of her life were hardly known. All I can say is that my ambition is not to make a disjunct between now and then. <laughs> my ambition <clears throat> is that all theologians all ought always to be so immersed in scripture tradition and tradition that that is animating their instincts, but at the same time open to the questions that are being confronted now. <laughs> if they're not if they're not open to the questions that are being confronted now, they're really just writing for themselves. They may be writing wonderfully rich and wise materials that people will take up again in the future. But it's the liveliness of the actualität, as the Germans say, that is important. And there's another element as well, and that is, where is it going? <laughs> where are you trying to direct? What's the telos, the goal? Where are you taking people? And that involves a vision and a hope for the future. So there's this almost kind of cruciform shape to what we're doing. We're, we're, um, we're drawing from the great riches of the past and always going back to scripture first and foremost. But we're also looking outwards to see what is in danger either of sinking the ship or actually is more positively is being asked of us as a church and as theologians so that we can look into the future with some hope of continuing transformation. That's the kind of in via instinct. Also, just to close, we have a tradition of asking a few quick questions for just for short answers, really. Um, and if you're open to that, we'll do that now. The first being, what is a book, one book you would recommend to a beginner in theology? But... Well, the Bible, actually. <laughs> um, um, you know, Oddly um, enough, I think you're the first one who, who has said that. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I, let's start with the basics, because you can't assume anyone's read it these days. <laughs> um, I remember I gave a, I gave a copy of, of, of the Bible to, to a a rather ancient parishioner of mine at Littlemore, who was one of the most faithful members of the congregation, because the vicar went away and I was taking a service and he'd locked away the Bible and so there wasn't one. And so I thought I'd better go and buy one. And I gave it to her to look after. And she came back the next day and she said, I've been reading this stuff. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't have a, I'm very bad at these kinds of questions. I don't have kind of faddishly favorite books. I mean, there are lots of books I, I guess I would recommend, not mm -hmm. my not my own books. But I, Maybe it would be based on the person, yeah. I, I would be based on the person. To. And also yeah. um, I, I would be very interested in asking, you know, is it just curiosity or are you wanting to deepen your prayer life? I mean, I would recommend classics of texts about development of the life of prayer probably as a alongside the bible suggestion and then i would try to lead them into the great the great classics of the tradition that doesn't mean i don't i don't admire much of what's going on because i think there's a great revival in theological work actually happening just as the church is sinking i think the theologians are oddly enough it's maybe it's the blood of the martyrs i think um uh our danger now is that there won't be any jobs left um, in the universities for young theologians who are coming along. I'm sorry to duck that question, but I... No, that's a good answer. I'm reading books all the time that I find absolutely amazing. Some of them are lined up here on my desk that I'm either reviewing or, or um, just reading for my own benefit. If you, if, you want one, if you want one book on 
the, the next book I'm writing that I've found incredibly exciting. It's by my friend Vincent Lloyd, who is an Afro-American professor at Villanova, but he's not Catholic. In fact, he's not really Christian. He sort of lives in that interesting space between faith and not faith. And he not long ago wrote a book called Black Natural Law, which is published by OUP, which is a completely, from this perspective, revisionist view about what black theology was about before it got um, uh, sidelined, as he sees it, by multiculturalism on the one hand and by a particular kind of political liberation theology on the other. He himself is highly political, but he thinks that the really good reasons for defeating and the means of defeating racism theologically are by looking, going back to the notion of the um, the image of God, the imago dei in every person. And he points out that the great tradition of Afro-American writers from Douglas and Du Bois onwards to Martin Luther King are constantly appealing to this notion of the, um, the image of God in every human. And it's funny how that's got lost. And so he's just rewriting the canon of Afro-American theological tradition through that lens. It not only connects it with Roman Catholic natural law in a very interesting way, but shows that it's different because it's, it's so deeply invested in struggle against racism. Thank you. That's a fantastic uh, recommendation of Vincent Lloyd's book. As a final question, and again, this might depend on the person, but what are some areas, if somebody's doing a, a doctorate in theology, that you really think deserve to be studied or not being studied, need to be studied, you would recommend to be studied? I find that some of the most interesting doctoral works are usually revisionist receptions, put it that way. In other words, one of the things that's really happening, I think, very fascinatingly in our generation is a, um, a new look at how traditions of Christianity have been received differently in different generations and either occluded or, or misunderstood or are in need of regenerative reflection. Indeed, I'm just completing a, with two other co-editors an enormous OUP handbook on the, the, the reception history of Christian doctrine through the centuries. And so I find that many of the best doctoral works are ones that rediscover a, a figure in the tradition who has um, either been misunderstood or read wrongly, or who's only been read in part of his or her materials. And this, this can lead to very creative redesignings of our sense of genealogy in the tradition. By the way, that kind of writing for a doctoral work is also well placed in terms of it's usually a safe thing to do if people want to get a job. Um, and you do have to think about that because when people come with a particular obsession of their own that's personal it, 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 or, or they have a far too wide range of people they want to bring into their dissertation, that's something I would just tend as a professional theologian in the university to discourage. But if they're reading texts in a really interesting new way and they want to draw out their implications for today as well as discover aspects of past figures who have been misunderstood, that I think is what I tend to advise. But I tend to, if you look at my doctoral students of whom there have been 25 or something in my career, you wouldn't see any sign of 
my having imposed my own agendas on them because they have written on incredible number of different things. And I'm very proud of that, actually, because I think one of the one of the worst things one can do in doctoral study is insist that people agree with you or that they imitate you. <laughs> they, they do imitate you without realizing it, uh, unfortunately. But <laughs> that, that's all sort of part of the narcissism of, the, of university life, I think. But um, it's not what I intend or want. This has been a really rich conversation. Uh, I'll turn it over to Andrew for a final comment, but I just want to thank you, Professor Sarah Coakley, for this feast of ideas. We could go on for much longer, but as we've been going for over an hour, and I want to respect uh, all of our your time, especially. Um, Andrew, over to you. Well, I want to add my thanks there. And there are so many uh, strands, I think, that pick up other interviews in this series. I think of Ian McFarland and his interest in the connection between theology and the needs of, of not only of the world, but of his area. I think there was a, a strong mm. sense that came um, of him being in Atlanta mm. and uh, with an, you know, more than an eye, uh, but, you know, feet and hands and, uh, and, and really active involvement in the, mm. uh, the happiness and the sadness of the uh, situation mm. uh, in, uh, in Georgia. And I think also of, um, an interview we had uh, recently with two uh, Baptist theologians, Matthew Barrett and yeah. uh, Craig uh, Carter, and th I think they very much also uh, were bringing in these themes of of retrieval and uh, mm -hmm. cre creative turning to the past, and and also what an ecumenical endeavour that is. So mm -hmm. it's striking that these um, two people from a Baptist tradition uh, were so enthusiastic about figures from the Middle Ages and were talking about their their life as as much more ecumenical than perhaps it, it was mm -hmm. in the past. So I think we could we could join up things from across almost all of the interviews that we've we've done so far. Yes, and um, I think in my in my case, um, the reason I had to kind of tear up the first version of volume two, which has been long awaited, when I came back to America, was that I headed into the crisis of not just the pandemic, but the eruptive crisis of black. Lives Matter after the death of George Floyd. And I <clears throat> I realized I just had to go back to the drawing board and I, or rather to the reading desk, and I've had to go deeply into the canon of Afro-American philosophical and, um, and theological thinking in, in order to explore this, this arena in volume two that I think needs further deep thinking, which is what exactly is the relationship between sin and racism. And... That's what that's what the book's about. And it's very surprising that recently there have been quite a few books on sin, but for many decades there was almost nothing written on sin after the mm. everything written about evil, but not about sin mm. after the Second World War. And I think it's led to some very confused thinking in liberal circles about what racism and sin have to do with one another. So, but then you also have to think about what sin is. <laughs> and, uh, there's never been any agreement about that in the Christian uh, Christian tradition, which is fascinating. But like Ian McFarland, I'm sitting in the middle of this, um, in on the edge of DC, um, and very very aware of what this means politically, um, and how important the churches, for all their loss of power, are. For the future of this because they they created it that makes us all the more eager Absolutely. to read your second volume when it when it comes out uh which i think will be in uh 2024 
I hope, yes. <laughs> yes, and, um, and we wish you well for the volumes after that. And thank you for the signal contribution that you're making to systematic theology in our own time. Well, thank you for the wonderful work that you're both doing, and especially Andrew in, on the edges of science and, and theology and philosophy, which is, as we've discussed, so important. And it's been a great joy to talk to you out of my semi-retirement. Thank, <laughs> thank you very much. Bye-bye. And you as well. Bye-bye.